Previously on Flying the Line. In the early days of commercial aviation, small airline operators such as Long and Harmon tried to cut operating costs by circumventing the minimum required pay for pilots as set forth in the National Labor Board's Decision 83. These small operations often severely undercut bids for post office contracts to fly airmail routes. These unrealistically low bids effectively cut out the large established operators, such as United and American Airways. Alpa founder Dave Banke knew the moment the low bids for the contracts were posted, that Alpa would be fighting to protect pilot pay rates. Because of Alpa's previous work in supporting President Franklin Roosevelt's agenda, Banke knew that the Roosevelt administration would be in full support of keeping pilot pay provisions intact. Alpa leveraged this support to argue against Long and Harmon's attempts to underpay their pilots. Alpa won the fight, but the fight underscored the importance of needing to have pilot pay provisions cemented into legislation. However, Alpa soon learned that safety would be another brick that would need to be cemented into law. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book, Flying the Line, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter nine, the rise and fall of the TWA Pilots Association, part one. When Transcontinental and Western Air decided to form a company union for its pilots, Harvey Bolton refused to join. He was one of only 17 TWA pilots who remained loyal to ALPA in 1933 when Walton Swede Goline led the rest out of ALPA. Of course, Bolton kept quiet about it. In TWA, silence was the price you paid to keep your job if you were an ALPA member. That quiet is now eternal. As he was killed on May 6, 1935, when his DC-2 crashed near Kirksville, Missouri. As fatal accidents go, the crash that claimed Harvey Bolton and his co-pilot Ken Greeson wasn't too disastrous. Of the 13 on board that night, only five died. Under ordinary circumstances, the crash of TWA Flight 6 would have made only a headline or two and quickly faded. It didn't fade, however. Owing to the identity of one of the deceased passengers, the crash that killed Bolton, Greeson, and three passengers was still newsworthy nearly three years later. Senator Bronson Cutting of New Mexico had boarded the plane earlier that evening in Albuquerque and gone to sleep. Because Bolton missed his approach in Kansas City and subsequently failed to find his alternate in Kirksville, the senator never woke up. Senator Cutting was the first prominent politician to die in an airline crash, and his death triggered a full-scale congressional investigation into airline safety that would ultimately revolutionize the industry and indirectly bring about the passage of the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. For ALPA, the Cutting crash would have two significant side effects. As a consequence of a muddled investigation by five separate governmental bodies, the accident would provide Banky 
with a perfect form from which to argue for something he had long dreamed of, an independent air safety board, which would investigate accidents to fix their probable cause. It also set in motion a chain of events that brought down the TWA Pilots Association, Jack Fry's company union. The TWA Pilots Association was born in December 1933, at a time when Dave Bankey was threatening a national strike. Bankey's strike threat was a desperate last gamble to keep the operators from reforming the wage structure, and it almost certainly would not have succeeded. Even knowing they could not win, a surprising number of pilots were ready to walk out anyway, mainly because they felt the operators had left them no choice. At the last minute, Banky's skillful manipulation of his political connections got the issue before the National Labor Board, thus averting the strike. But the pressure of the moment was too much for TWA's pilots, who were badly intimidated and all but leaderless owing to the death of Hal George. TWA's Master Executive Committee Chairman Swede Golin led the defection. The average TWA pilot went along with it because he was bewildered, fearful of losing his job, and prone to following his local leaders. Swede Golin wasn't a bad guy, and to this day, Alpa loyalists refused to speak ill of him. An affable, easygoing sort, Golin was well-liked by his fellow TWA pilots. The idea of directly confronting men like company chief Jack Fry and head of operations Paul Richter in a strike situation was abhorrent to him. Although Golin knew that Fry and Richter were his superiors, he thought of them as his colleagues. Banky's maneuvering in Washington, coupled with his threat to call a nationwide strike, was too much for Golin, and many pilots shared his views. Swede led the walkout, but he wouldn't be president of the new company union. The company wanted Howard Hall to do it because they knew he had been a good Alpa man, but he declined. So it happened that Harlan Hull, a TWA executive pilot, became the titular president. The TWA Pilots Association was so obviously a creation of management that few pains were taken to conceal it. Still, the TWA separatist movement was a serious threat to Alpa. In the absence of contractual guarantees, even committed and loyal ALPA members would have no choice but to join a company union should their employers follow the TWA example. In late 1933, ALPA was still far too weak in numbers to seek collective bargaining agreements. And in any case, the governmental machinery for selecting a bargaining agent through a representative election was not yet in place but would later come as the New Deal matured. In late 1933, ALPA was still far too weak in numbers to seek collective bargaining agreements. And in any case, the governmental machinery for selecting a bargaining agent through a representative election was not yet in place, but would come later, as the New Deal matured. For the moment, Banky knew that he must devote all of his energies to stamping out the virus of company unionism that had broken out on TWA before it spread to other airlines. 
His chosen method was through a political presence in Washington. If he could convince airline executives that ALPA could make trouble for their airmail appropriations by influencing key legislators, Banky believed they would hesitate before undercutting ALPA with company unions. But politics by itself would not be enough. Banky knew that ALPA would have to survive on its own merits, that it would have to perform, produce salary increases, win grievances, help pilots in trouble with the government, the whole gamut of job-related assistance that modern pilots take for granted. And that's where the earlier Long and Harmon affair proved helpful. The effects of that fight rippled through the industry and first manifested itself at Braniff and Delta, neither of which was complying with Decision 83 before the Long and Harmon crackdown. Both airlines began paying their pilots the prescribed scale shortly thereafter, and by threatening to bring another action through the post office, Banky got Braniff to distribute $30,000 in back pay to its pilots. Banky's case for ALPA was helped even further when a group of small operators created the Independent Operators Association, an entity whose ostensible goal was to lobby the post office for increased airmail compensation and more favorable routes. By the fall of 1934, Banky was regularly castigating this group, contending that its real purpose was to seek ways and means of violating Decision 83. Thanks to an anonymous airline executive who leaked memos to him, Banky was able to document his claims. ALPA's proven effectiveness as an agent for pilots was in direct contrast to the public record of the TWA Pilots Association. The differing testimonies of Banky and Harlan Hull before the HAL Commission bring those differences into clear focus. The commission, chaired by Clark Howell, editor of the Atlanta Constitution, had as its primary purpose the study of airmail subsidies. In the aftermath of the airmail cancellations in February 1934, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had asked Congress for specific legislation authorizing him to appoint a study commission to update the work done by the Morrow Board, a similar study commission appointed by President Coolidge in 1925 and named for its chairman, Dwight Morrow. Since Morrow was a powerful financier, it was no surprise that his board's findings favored substantial investment in commercial aviation with strong subsidy support from the government via airmail contracts, guaranteeing private risk capital. The Morrow Board's work laid the groundwork for the whole edifice of early commercial aviation, including de facto control by the Postmaster General, the system, in short, that FDR dismantled when he canceled the airmail contracts. The Howe Commission's job was to erect another structure, one that eventually turned out to be the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938, the cornerstone of the industry until the arrival of airline deregulation in 1978. Although Charles Lindbergh refused to serve on the Howe Commission, thus earning FDR's anger, several other prestigious persons were associated with it, including Edward P. Warner, an MIT professor and aviation expert with a worldwide reputation. 
the Howell Commission began its work in July 1934 and submitted its report in January 1935. In his testimony before the Howell Commission in November 1934, Banky addressed his fellow pilots on the dangers of company unionism, stating that they did not have job protection in mind, but rather the airline interest, and the leaders were not licensed nor qualified to render an opinion. Only an active line pilot, in his estimation, could comment on flying the line. Banky was making this point by way of rebuttal to the testimony of celebrity aviators like Amelia Earhart, who had opposed minimum wage and working condition guarantees in testimony before the Howell Commission. He succeeded well in linking this managerial mentality to the TWA Pilots Association. When Harlan Hull appeared before the Howe Commission in his capacity as president of the TWA Company Union, his testimony was indistinguishable from any airline executives. He opposed minimum guarantees of wages and working conditions, and he also protested a provision proposed by Banky whereby a federal agency like the National Labor Board would be established to hear grievances in the case of a pilot's firing. Hull had, in short, totally discredited the TWA Pilots Association by his testimony, because if there was one thing every airline pilot wanted, it was some safeguard against dismissal. Banky and Hull differed on one other issue as well. Banky was adamantly in favor of an independent safety board to investigate accidents, while Hull was lukewarm, leaning towards opposition. Another issue agreed upon by every pilot was that the existing system of accident investigation was much in need of reform. Pilot error appeared far too often as the probable cause of accidents, and early airline pilots wanted that stopped. By early 1935, Banky's files were beginning to bulge with letters from TWA pilots filled with a variety of grievances. The TWA Pilots Association had proved utterly worthless as a watchdog, Many of these writers shamefully admitted the error of having supported the company union. Which takes us back to the death of Senator Cutting and the TWA Flight 6 disaster. While Captain Bolton may or may not have been an active ALPA member, Banky kept the list of dues payers under tight security in those early days. He received the full support of the union in the days after the crash, and doubly so once the Department of Commerce findings of pilot error appeared three weeks after. For airline pilots of the 1930s, the frequency of pilot error findings was a source of constant irritation. They believed the investigatory process was rigged against them and in favor of the companies and the government. Early airline pilots wanted to subject the bureaucrats of the Commerce Department to the same rigorous investigation they had to undergo following an accident. At the time of the cutting crash, the department still investigated itself. Could the truth emerge from such an investigation? Many people, including Dave Banky, wanted the answer to that question. It seemed unlikely. Out of a total of 101 fatal accidents between 1927 and 1935, the Department of Commerce attributed the majority to pilot error, with a few other causes making up the remainder. 
Not once did they attribute the probable cause of an accident to its own areas of responsibility. Banky suspected that Bolton had not been completely at fault in the accident because he believed that a combination of poor weather forecasting and worse radio maintenance at Kirksville was responsible, he gambled that an early publicity campaign hinting at a cover-up would put the government on the defensive. Banky informed the press in the first few hours after the accident that pilots believe that fatigue is an important factor in accidents, and a tired pilot is an unsafe one. Banky went on to inform the press that Captain Bolton had been flying more than eight hours, even though there was a Commerce Department regulation prohibiting this. This was still legal, however, as Banky acknowledged, because of a special waiver granted to TWA by Director Eugene Vidal of the Bureau of Air Commerce. After a survey conducted of the granted waivers in the crash's wake, Banky opined that the eight-hour maximum flight rule out of any 24 should be hard and fast, with no waivers. Banky also flooded the newspapers of the country with letters attacking the investigatory process in general, the Commerce Department in particular, and especially Eugene Vidal, whom he regarded as being in cahoots with the operators. Banky's incessant drumbeating did not fall on deaf ears because the powerful Hearst newspapers soon took up the call and advocated that the crash be investigated by competent and disinterested experts. On May 28, 1935, faced with mounting criticism from congressmen who were unaware that he had the power to waive the eight-hour rule, Vidal canceled all such waivers and handed Alpa and Banky a critical victory. The fight over an independent investigation of the accident still remained. Thank you for listening. This has been part one of chapter nine of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright 2020. All rights reserved.